Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, economist Ian Harper speaks on Jesus' game-changing teaching about money and wealth. Ian also shares his personal testimony of how he became a Jesus follower. So Ian, give me a background in economics. I've been an economist all of my professional life. I studied economics at the university, my undergraduate and graduate degrees. Then I taught economics at the university for about 20 years. And around about five years ago, I decided that it was time for a change, Carl. So I left the academic world and moved into consulting. So I now work as a consulting economist for one of the large uh, accounting firms. Why economics? Any particular reason? I think it fascinated me. Mm. Uh, I was at one point thinking about being a lawyer. Uh, and I realized fairly quickly that I don't have a legal mind. Okay. I don't think like lawyers think. Uh, and I admire the way they do, but it's not me. Whereas economics, on the other hand, was logical. Uh, it also addressed issues that I cared about, questions of what we call public policy. You know, what matters for people's lives, at least in the commercial dimension. And later in the interview, we're going to talk about uh, faith and how that became a part of your life. Um, and it's really foundational for you. Did Jesus have much to say about money? Actually, he did, Carl. Jesus speaks more about money than almost any other topic, uh, both in the stories that he tells and his parables and in some of the situations that he deals with. You think about Zacchaeus, for example, you know, come down, I'm staying at your house tonight, and Zacchaeus gives away half of all he owns, and the Gospels make that point. Uh, but in the stories and the parables that Jesus tells, he often raises commercial issues that people would be familiar with, simple things like the lost coin uh, or the shrewd manager or the rich young ruler. He talks about situations that people would recognize immediately and talks about money um, because people often have to deal with issues of money. That was clearly true in the first century. Well, if, if you were to, I know you can't do this. If you were to summarize one of the key ideas for Jesus, what was the key idea around money? It was, was like, to, to narrow that down a little bit, did, did, did Jesus see money as an evil thing? I don't think he saw it as an evil thing. He saw it as a potential idol. He saw it as something that would take attention, our attention, away from him and the things of God. Uh, and as with any idol, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the Ten Commandments warn us about exactly the same thing, right? That um, Jesus is saying, well, you know, do you love me? Uh, not that. And I think that the interview or the dialogue with the rich young ruler is probably the most telling on that front. Um, you know, sir, what must I do to be saved? Well, keep the commandments. Well, I've done that ever since I was a child. Oh, well, in that case, he says, give everything away and follow me. I mean, Jesus knew that was the obstacle, money, right? And as the scriptures say, the man walks sadly away, right? Thinking to himself, well, that's a bridge too far. That's what I can't do. And then Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Uh, in other words, I interpret that as saying, this money thing really grips people. You know, look at that, right? There's a man who is wealthy, how hard it is for him to actually give that away and follow me. So I think the message that comes out of the Gospels about money is that not that money per se is an evil thing. Uh, as Paul says in, later on in the New Testament, uh, money is a root of all kinds of evil. A root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is evil. Uh, Jesus makes it clear that you can't serve God and money. Uh, that's the trouble with money and wealth. It can sit in the place of God, just like idols do. That's the bit which Jesus says uh, will, is the difference between life and death. So Ian, we're saying that, that 
money and wealth aren't negative, oh, sorry, money and wealth aren't evil in and of themselves. So how do you kind of make that balance between what Jesus is saying about how it can be positive or how it can be negative? How do well, we deal with that balance? Well, money and wealth are means to an end, Carl. And, and I think um, in one of my favorite parables about money, Jesus tells the story of the shrewd manager uh, where he actually commends this person who's been you know, found out essentially tickling the books, as they used to say. He's been found out and his boss has told him, well, you know, you're going to be sacked. Uh, and so the chap runs around and does a series of deals with the people whom he's cheated. Uh, and Jesus commends him for that and says, you know, how shrewd this fellow is, that he's using worldly wealth to make friends for himself when it's gone. Right? And Jesus says, for the children of light are naive in that, you know, use money in the same sort of way to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, I mean, in Jesus' meaning in that point, when you're dead, right, when you've left this place, that you've made friends for yourself in eternal places. So it's not that he would say have nothing to do with money. He's saying but you use money for eternal purposes, for kingdom purposes. It's a means to an end. And if you conflate those two, if you start serving the created order, start worshipping this thing that's a means to an end, then you know, you've got the message wrong. Well, worse than that, it takes you away from the love of Christ, the love of Jesus in your life, which is the source of salvation. In looking at economics in general, uh, Western nations that have built robust economies, mm. what are the sort of things that are needed mm. for a robust economy to function that's both fair and positive? Mm. It's uh, interesting because many of the principles, even just laid out in the Ten Commandments, are, uh, turn out to have very strong commercial value. Uh, you know, you shall not bear false witness, you don't lie, right? Uh, you shall not steal. You recognize that private property is an important thing. What's yours is yours, what's mine is mine. That you would be true to your word in dealing with people. Those basic moral precepts, which are affirmed in the Old Testament, obviously again, uh, in the new, happen to have quite strong value, use value, in driving um, the economy. Right? We need to be able to trust each other and to have a sense of that. So I think it's, it's those principles, when, when economists talk about how you unleash material prosperity, they start talking about that very basic level. Property rights, trust, right? social capital is a, a modern word for those types of things. They're essential ingredients, along obviously with other types of resources that economists will point to. They point to the fact that human resources are, in the knowledge economy in modern day, our intellect, but our willingness to take risks. Again, a theme that Jesus comes to, interestingly, in the parable of the talents, using another commercial analogy. Right? Saying, well, you've got the talents, and, and who gets condemned? The person who took this and buried it in the ground. Uh, not the chap who lent it out and comes back and says, but I bring you, you know, many fold, more than you gave me. Jesus commends that. Not because he's offering investment advice, <laughs> but because what he's saying is, see that principle, you understand that. That's a commercial principle. Well, I'm talking about the same thing. However, you know, in kingdom terms, that you would go, that you would invest, and that you would bring back a return. The idea of saving, thinking about tomorrow, 
using worldly wealth to make friends for yourself when it's gone, being sparing, prudent, all of those ideas have very strong commercial value, Carl. And, and, and that's sort of unsurprising in a way. They derive from the same source. You know, God created the world. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised these types of principles that have an essence of God in them work commercially. The problem is if that's all you do with them. <laughs> if you think that's the only use they have, a worldly use, then you've lost the plot. Yeah, it's been said that the global financial crisis was all was was a kind of a, a failure of trust and mm. honesty. Is, yeah. that, is that how you would see it? Oh well, at the very least, it's that. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. If you can't, if you know, a number of the cases that were subsequently tried, when when you know judges would burst out and say, "Didn't anybody ever ask at any point whether this was wrong?" Mm. Hmm? Or, or how could you? And people offering the Nuremberg defense, well, I was just doing you know, what I was told, Your Honor, uh, and I never questioned any of this. And none of that washes. It doesn't wash in people's common sense, you know, innately, whether people are people of, of uh, you know, Christian faith or other faith or no faith. There's something deep inside which says, no, 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 no. <laughs> right? You know, this is right or this is wrong, okay? And, you, and you've got to call that out. So uh, hence the emphasis since that time on corporate ethics programs. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not that Christian faith, the teaching mm. of Jesus and a kind of a commercial economy mm. are actually at odds with each oh, other. Well, on the contrary, in, in the sense that basic, basic gospel values, biblical values, call them what you like, right, are, are keep getting rediscovered as in, essential ingredients to commercial life. And, and once more, Carl, I don't think that anybody's in the commercial life in itself is evil. I mean, it, it's, how, it's how people meet their daily needs, right? Um, if you go back to the Old Testament story, you know, when, 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 when basically um, uh, Cain is thrust out of the garden, right? God at that point could simply have destroyed him, right? But he doesn't do that. <laughs> in fact, he marks him to make sure that nobody else kills him. And he essentially says, now, you're going to go and work for your living. Mm -hmm. You're going to provide for yourself and your family, right? And I won't abandon you. I will actually let that happen. And Cain, you know, wanders off to the city, <laughs> interestingly enough, right? And starts to, presumably, along with Enoch and the others, they start to build, you know, human prosperity. They're working for themselves. So the key difference in the, in the fallen world is that that's what we have to do. We can't just wander around in the garden anymore. We have to work by the sweat of our brow. Uh, and, and so there is something, I think, strongly biblical about God providing these foundations for us to meet our material needs, which isn't to say that he isn't in and through that. I mean, he obviously is in and through that. But, he, but he, it's part of God's love for us that he hasn't said, well, that's it, you can starve, right? No, here are the means for doing this. But this is about your material welfare, your material, and I care for that. But of course, I care for, whole, for a whole lot more than that, which is why he sends his son. You've answered this question kind of inherent in what you've been saying, but if somebody was trying to follow the teaching of Jesus around, say, money and materialism and wealth, what would you say that their action should be or their lifestyle should be? Well, first and foremost, as we said earlier, and as Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't serve God through money and the other if you take the full counsel, as it were, of Jesus' teaching, that's, I think, what you see, that he uses those examples, even praises the shrewd manager. Well, I would answer your question, Carl, by saying that, that you should avoid at all costs 
allowing money or wealth to become an idol. Tim Keller is very good on this subject when uh, he speaks about counterfeit gods, one of which of course is money in his wonderful little book by the same title. And Tim Keller says, an idol is something that you love, trust and obey. It's very easy for us to love money, to trust money, and then to obey its demands. If you find yourself falling into any one of those three traps, then you're really on the wrong road. I mean, and Jesus doesn't tell us, doesn't say this to us because look, you need to watch out for that. It's because of his love. He's saying, warning, warning, right? You know, if that happens, then you're going to go further away from me, not towards me, right? Further away from the kingdom and what it means for your life. And I'm telling you, you know, don't do that, right? Don't go that way. So the message is, yeah, don't let it become an idol. Does it mean that a Christian can't be someone who has money? I don't think that's true at all. Uh, again, Jesus asked Zacchaeus, well, Zacchaeus actually gave away half his money voluntarily, and Jesus commended that. Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey, wait a minute, what about the other half? Right? Yes, he asked the rich young ruler to give it all away because in a sense he knew what the rich young... We don't know, it's not recorded in the scriptures, but if the rich young ruler had said, all right, there's the lot, right? For all we know, the Lord might have said, no, 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 right? Now I know where your heart is, right? Let's use this wealth, you know, for the benefit of the kingdom. And you can do that, you make those choices. So there are plenty of uh, Christians who are blessed, particularly in the West, with either having a lot of money or the ability to make a lot of money, Paul is good on this. Paul talks about having the gift of giving. It's one of the spiritual gifts. Now, if you've got the gift of giving, then give. And how does that happen? Well, you have to make the money to give it away. Um, uh, wasn't it John Wesley who said, you know, earn all you can, right? Gain all you can, give all you can. So it isn't that I think either Jesus himself or that the church has turned around and said, if you're a rich person, forget it. You can't get into the kingdom. If you're a rich person who worships money, well, then yes, right? That's the problem. That's a blocker. Uh, why? Because you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. So, Ian, you're around this business all the time, the industry of mm. the e e economics and the economy. How do you keep yourself balanced in all of that? Ah, a Christian friend of mine, Carl, talks about minding the gap, right? Uh, by which he means that wherever your income is, that you should aim to ensure that you spend less than you can afford to spend. So you create deliberately a gap between the two. Uh, and that has two purposes. The first, obviously, is to make way for, for your giving. Uh, and as Christians, you know, we are asked to give. Uh, God loves a cheerful giver, so we're not under law, but we give. Uh, and creating the gap enables us to do that. But I think that there's a deeper reason here. In, in the end, giving is a way of protecting your heart, insulating your heart against what we all feel. And we all know it's a seductive thing. It's potentially an idol. All idols are seductive. And if you can give the money away, if you can say, all right, yep, okay, this much, you know, is mine and this much belongs to the Lord, give it away. That enables you to discipline yourself and not to be captured by it. You can turn and give it away. Uh, I remember a very wealthy investment banker friend of mine who was a Christian and uh, he approached me gingerly once and, and said, oh, they, he said, they tell me that you tithe. And I said, well, I said, that, that's right, actually. He said, oh, he, says, he said, yeah, he said, I know I should, I'm troubled by that. And I said, well, why are you troubled by that? And he said, 
do you have any idea what 10% of my income is? And I said, no, and I don't want to know. What I do know is this, even after you've given the 10% away, the 90% of it is yours. And you've got 90% of a very large number. Right? I mean, God doesn't ask us to do these things to make life miserable. God says, I want to protect you from various forms of temptation, various things that could potentially supplant me in your life. And for most wealthy Christians, certainly, but even poor people, frankly, right? the idea that money could grip us in a way that the Lord Jesus doesn't is only too prevalent. It's interesting because that, that idea of the gap is not actually about wealth, is it? No. It's an attitudinal issue. Isn't Absolutely, it? Uh, Carl. And, and when, when my wife and I were raising our two sons, uh, we would impress upon them the need for the gap, the need to tithe, and, and out of, they used to get, you know, a dollar, right, in, in, uh, in pocket money a week. And they would put aside their 10 cents and put it into the tray as it came along. Uh, and in God's grace, you know, both of my sons are followers of the Lord and married Christian women. And, and it's, the, it's just, I think, that act of faithfulness. I think, you know, God is actually saying, Jesus is saying, if, if you can open up your hand right, yes. and give that away, then the rest is a cakewalk. Yes. Right? Yes. The rest is a cakewalk. That's the hardest thing, which to circle back is one of the reasons why I think Jesus uses money as the basis of so many of his stories, because he knows our hearts, <laughs> which are deceptive above all things, particularly when it comes to money. And it's interesting to compare the world that Jesus was in was mm. not the sort of, uh, you know, Western economies that we're in. Oh, and on yet, the contrary. And yet it was the same issue in both, both oh, places. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's been an issue, I think, you know, we're always struggling with that. Mm. Uh, and in those days, as you rightly point out, that the, the economies weren't as commercial as they are today. So there was a lot essentially of, you know, not lending to people. The reason why um, you were told not to charge interest in those days, we understand now, is that there was effectively, if you're lending to someone, you're helping them out because they're in distress. You weren't making a commercial loan, or at least very rarely, yeah. uh, where you know paying and giving of interest eventually gave way because the economy grew into a commercial economy that we'd now recognise. Now, if you were lending to someone, it was because they were destitute. Mm. Uh, and the idea of charging interest on top of that was really offensive uh, under the Old Testament and, and under the New as well. Just your own story, because you grew up, you went, I remember you saying you went to a church school, mm, but yeah, it didn't did. have the kind of positive impact around, around faith that, yeah. you, that, that maybe we would expect that it would have. Yeah. It, it's funny, Carl, as time goes by, of course, as the years goes by, you look, you look back, you know, and, and you see it in, in more rose-coloured glasses, or, or you begin to see things that were there that you hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I do give thanks for the fact that we went to chapel every morning, right? And I can still recite the words of the hymns <laughs> that we sang, and they're a great comfort to me now, yeah. all these years later, 50 years later. Uh, but it's true. Uh, I'm not going to say that the gospel was never presented to me. I, I, I can't be certain. Uh, I can be certain, at least in one case, of a man who did show me Christ's love in a very basic way. That was true. Uh, that happened there. But I didn't have a conversion experience. I didn't respond, if you like, and it was a fairly formal setting. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you could say uh, a church school, church schooling isn't going to bring you to faith or even necessarily build you up in your faith if you're already a Christian. Uh, but I wouldn't want to say that um, it's a blocker. I mean, God can work with anything. 
And in the end, I think what God has done is to point to me over the years and say, you know, I was with you then. I showed you this then, right? You didn't see these things, but they were there. I was there. And you, you went on in life, you uh, got into economics, as you mm. said, uh, mm. building a career mm. uh, as a lecturer, married, uh, young yeah. children. Yeah. A bit of a change then because your wife, with, with you being negative about faith, yes. your wife actually became interested. Yeah. When she became interested, what was your response? Yeah. Well, my response was to be very angry, Carl, because I think that just to come back again to your point about the church school upbringing, I guess that, that was the point I thought uh, arrogantly enough, that I knew about this, right? And that there was nothing in it beyond feel good or uh, a basic ethical framework. And I suppose I was, well, I was hurt, I suppose. I guess I might've been offended at some level mm. that my wife came to me and said, well, there isn't enough in my life just with you, right? You know? And, well, maybe there are a lot of men out there watching this thinking, uh-huh, right? And maybe a lot of women saying that too. But um, that's how I heard it. And, she and so she went, as it were, to find religion in order to make up what I, for what I took to be deficiencies in myself. Then the substance being, then of course, what I did was not to attack that, but to attack the religion, right? The, the faith and say, well, I've been there, done that. It's a waste of time. Why are you doing this? And Ian, what's worse, that she wanted to go to church? Well, absolutely. Right? After all that that I'd been through. And I said, well, um, I propped. Right? I wasn't going to do that. Uh, and she came to see me. First, she sort of accepted that. was not very happy about it. Uh, and then she came out one morning on a Sunday and she was all ready to go to church. And I said to her, I said, what do you think you're doing? And she said, I'm going to church and I'm taking our sons to church, and you can do what you like. So it was the first time in, what, nearly a dozen years of marriage uh, that she'd put to me, the pro it was then clear to me, put it this way, Carl, that she meant exactly what she said, was, was saying, I realized this was more serious than perhaps I'd given it to. And I was faced with the prospect of deciding, well, am I going to be with my wife for something which, which is very important for her, or am I gonna continue to prop? And I thought, no, 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 my marriage is more important. And so I yielded and I went. How'd you go? What was it like? Well, it, it, would, it had been quite some time since I'd been there. I felt very uncomfortable. Uh, with hindsight, I'd have to say that I behaved badly. I mean, I wasn't you know, outrageously, but I was short with the minister and I was making it quite clear that I didn't like to be there. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it wasn't a comfortable experience. How did he challenge you? Well, after I'd been a couple of times, uh, he came down after the service and looked me in the eye and he said, um, he said, you don't want to be here, do you? And I said, not particularly. And he said, and what's more, he says, you don't believe a word of what's being said. And I said, no, I don't. Right? And he said, well, then how long do you propose to keep coming here while you don't believe anything that's said? And I thought that was a fair question. So I said, listen, I said, if you can explain this to me in a way that I can believe, then I'll believe it thinking to myself, fat chance, right? He looked me in the eye and he said, you're on. <laughs> so the minister decided to meet with you? That's right. What did, he, what did you do? How did he explain it to you? Well, he said, as I said, he said, you know, you're on, right? And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, are you, have you got a Bible at home? And I said, yes, I do, I guess somewhere. 
And he said, right. He said, are you free Tuesday night? And I said, I could be. And he says, good. He says, get the Bible. He says, read the first two chapters of a book called Mark. He says, you'll find it towards the end of the Bible. He says, I'll be there at half past seven and we can talk about it. Uh, which I did. And uh, we then worked our way through the book of Mark for the next, whatever it was, seven or eight weeks. And he let me ask whatever I wanted to ask. Did he and always I have didn't. the answer? No, he didn't, Carl. That was one of the things that I found most impressive about that period. Uh, for a start, I'd never actually read the Gospels. And so here I was pretending that I'd, you know, well, I had been to a church school, that I knew this. And I was telling my wife I knew all about this. And of course, he said, well, read the Gospels. Well, I'd never actually read the thing from end to end. Uh, and as I did, there were lots of things that occurred to me on the way through. And some things that I must say led me to give it, well, yes, to the view that I'd underestimated what was actually here. Uh, but I would ask him questions, and um, not every time, but often he would say to me, I don't know the answer to that. And I would say, let me get this straight. I said, you're an educated, intelligent man. I said, you don't know the answer to the question I've just asked you. He said, that's right. And I said, well, then why do you believe this? And he said, well, there are lots of things that I don't understand, and yet I believe to be true. He said, I'm sure that's also true of you. And I thought for a minute, and he said, for example, you know, do you understand how electricity works? And I said, well, he said, but do you? And I said, yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that it was a simple objection, and uh, I accepted that you didn't have to understand everything in order to be able to essentially believe that it was true. It, it, there was a there's a process then for you mm. to kind of struggle with not how do I feel about this, mm. but it's is this true? Was that the kind of process that? You oh, definitely. Through? Well, as I said, I, I was you know. I'm, trained at that point I was an academic I was a professor at the university and uh, all of my training uh, led me to the usual sort of scientific view I wanted to know the evidence and I wanted to know the logic so on the basis of the logic and the evidence that's how I reached my belief in my own professional discipline and um, you know what John was challenging me to see was that it was the same process that was going on here you know here's the evidence here's the logic you know what do you make of this that's what he was showing me, uh, whereas I'd come at it with a sense that it was just, well, a fable, basically, just a made-up story. Uh, and as I read the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, that was one of the things I said to him. Um, I said, you know, what he actually said to me, he said, well, what do you make of this? And I said, well, I'll tell you this much. I said, I don't think that it's been made up. And he said, oh, really? He said, why do you say that? And I said, well, you wouldn't write these things in here if you were trying to convince people that this was true. You know, particularly when, when Jesus gets very irritated and impatient with the disciples. You know, how long have I got to put up with you people? That type of thing. You, think, oh, you wouldn't put that in there, right? And he says, fair enough. So what do you make of it? And I said, I don't know. Now, it obviously came to some point where you did. Mm. So what was that shift? Well, as you know, Carl, that, that, that's a sort of deep within the mysteries of God, basically, as to what it is. You know, C.S. Lewis says he gets into a sidecar in Oxford, not a Christian. He gets out of the sidecar in London, a Christian. Uh, I'm a bit the same. Uh, th there, was a, there was a change, a, a strange warming of my heart, I think, is the way John or Charles Wesley describes the same type of thing. It, it's God's grace and conversion, as Paul describes. It's an act of God. In my case, um, yeah, I, I, this was I probably maybe three months after this process had started, and we were going to church uh, on Christmas Day, as it turned out. And uh, there I was, and we'd been through all of this discussion, and I'd been thinking about these things. 
Uh, and uh, John was preaching. He preached about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and the three gifts and all of that. Uh, and then there was a call to communion. This was an Anglican church, which uh, I insisted on because I went to an Anglican school. And uh, there was a call to communion. And as people went up, I'd never taken communion prior to that time. In fact, I didn't take it at school either. I just didn't think it was right since I didn't believe or understand what was going on. But now I'd, I'd been through this and it was a call to communion. I didn't go up for a while. And then I looked and I saw people gathering at the front of the church and I saw John there ministering and I thought, what do you know? It's actually true. So I got up and I went forward and uh, I kneeled at the rail and John came along of course and he saw me there. He offered me the bread and offered me the wine and I went back to my seat. And immediately after the service he came down and he said, you took communion today. And I said, that's right, I did. He said, why? And I said, because it's true. He gave me a great big hug. Wow. And I came into the kingdom, Carl. Wow. Did it change life for you immediately? It certainly changed my relationship with my wife immediately. Uh, things then moved on to a much better plane and we were on the same basis. I mean, you know, praise God for that. Um, I really do feel for a lot of married couples where, as they say, the shadow of the cross falls on one side or the other. Uh, in God's grace, we were apart, you know, spiritually for really only a relatively short time. Uh, so that changed. As far as my work was concerned, the thing that changed, it wasn't immediate, Carl, but I, I realised, in fact, for a while, I thought exactly that. Do I need to give up doing what I'm doing? Do I now, should I stop being an economist and should I you know, train for the ministry? Should I, be, I mean, what do you do? Yeah. It's a bit different if you're a, I think anyway, if you're a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, you're one of the caring professions. People think, well, obviously, you know, to be a Christian doctor makes a lot of sense, a Christian nurse or whatever. Christian economist? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> you know, should I run a mile from this? And I wrestled with that for a while, but I, I must say, Carl, I never had any sense in my heart that God was calling me out of this. Uh, now, here I am down the line nearly 30 years. I think God was saying to me, no, 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 right? I want you to be an economist, but I want you to be a believing economist, you know? Be an economist for me and for the kingdom. And, and in God's grace, he's given me that opportunity through those years, I think anyway, to do that. Uh, and uh, at least that's how I try to follow him and how I try to express my faith in that part of my life. Ian, you know, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. How do you see Jesus as a game changer? Well, Jesus changed my life. The direction and purpose of my life gave me a whole new perspective on what I, what I was living for. Uh, gave me a sense of hope and purpose in my life. That's the major game change for me. Uh, professionally, it gave me a new direction, a new way of thinking about my discipline and my profession within a, within a grander context. It uh, did lead me to reject some parts of what I was professionally doing um, and build up other parts. It made me come out with a message that economics was a means to an end, not an end in itself, and that uh, in the end economics should be supporting life and life in abundance, life to the full, meaning of course not just material abundance, 
but life in the kingdom. So it gave me perspective. In my personal life, of course, it was a game changer. In some respects, it rescued my marriage, you might say. Uh, so I can look back at that, Carl, and see, yes, there is definite direction. I was then moved into a whole you know, new world of, of, uh, of ideas, of, of friends, of, of love and companionship and faithfulness. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.